Yeah, good, good. We're August already. How many people think that like summer's just flying away and we'll be like dealing with snow and Christmas and all that? You guys are Canadians, right? Like every year we complain about this, but every year it is our reality, so we have to accept it. If you could open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, we are going to continue with our series in the book of Philippians. Uh, I'd like to just take a moment as you're doing that to welcome any visitors. Uh, I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I get to share uh, the, the word with you this morning, and so I'm just really excited about that. How many people know that churches occasionally, every once in a while, very rarely, have problems? One of the things that we've established is that This church that Paul loves, this church in Philippi, is predominantly a Gentile-based church, but it's a a mixed church from people from all kinds of different areas of life. Really, it represents a church very similar to a church like us. But Paul, everybody sees Philippians as the joyful book, and it is because of how Paul decides on how he's going to coach or direct uh, this church in love and in joy. And so there, there is no such thing, folks, as a church without problems. It just doesn't exist. Actually, the only church that there is without problems is a church that is absent of all people, which then makes it not a church. And so it, there, it just is our reality because we are human beings and we struggle with humanness. We struggle with sin, and so we have Problems, And so there is a, a slight problem brewing in this church in Philippi where they think, they believe that it was a struggle between the leadership and the people. And again, that never happens either. But uh, Paul is lovingly, joyfully walking them through and instructing them on how to deal with conflict in a Christ-like way. That's one of the things that I love about the book of Philippians is that it's actually teaching us how to be the church, how to interact with one another, how to have a differing of opinions, how to journey in life together and deal with conflict in the midst of all of that. Now, what Paul's going to teach us today is the key to how we navigate these things. And the key to really summarize it is actually rooted in spiritual maturity. Now, I need to establish very quickly, just because you've been here a long time, just because you've been a Christian for a long time, I'm sorry, I hate to be honest and blunt with you, but it does not equate to spiritual maturity necessarily. Just because you read your Bible all the time and you can quote scripture and you attend church as much as possible, it does not mean that you have attained spiritual maturity. A a good friend of mine, uh, he's actually spoken here, uh, Dr. Wayne Baxter, he's a professor at Heritage Bible College in Cambridge. He says this in his commentary in the book of Philippians. He says, spiritual maturity involves becoming more discerning. And discernment is a grace that enables people and congregations to navigate through the turbulence of discord. 
spiritual maturity comes to expression in how a person lives, i.e. their prayer life, their piety, their attitudes. But it also manifests in how a person thinks. I want you to hear that, folks. Spiritual maturity is not just about how you act or the things you do, but it's actually literally rooted in how a person thinks. We must all seek mental maturity, striving to become theologically mature and discerning. Now, in our passage today, Paul is going to show us how we we can become more discerning, how we can become more spiritually mature. He's going to walk you through this, walk the Philippians through how we go about maturing in Christ, and it's not what we think it is. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 says this. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Have you ever noticed that preachers tend to be repetitive? There's a reason for that. I will continue to preach the same thing to you until you get it. Therefore, we keep repeating ourselves because we often just don't get it. And so Paul is opening this section. A lot of commentators actually think that this could have been multiple letters turned into one letter, and so that this could be the opening uh, of another letter. I don't know about all of that, nor do we really care, right? You don't want me to get all Bible geek on you, so I won't. But he says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble to me to write the same thing to you again. I've told you this before. And I'm going to tell it to you again because it safeguards you. It's a reminder. It's something that you constantly need to be reminded of as the church. He's repeating things because they need to hear these things more than once. Now he goes on in verse 2. He says, watch out for those dogs. Now, he doesn't like literally mean any of you dog haters. He, this isn't a passage that you can quote to say, watch out for those horrible shedding dogs. It, 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 that, that's not what he's talking about here. We'll unpack that in a minute. He says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Whenever a biblical writer says, watch out, pay attention, these are key words of a moment where he's giving you a warning, telling you to to pay attention. And so what we need to do in order to understand this passage, as we need to do every single time we read the scriptures, is we need to go back 2,000 plus years and put ourselves into their culture, into this moment when Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi. We have to start there with the context. And so what is actually happening here is there is this group of Jews who are trying to impact the Gentile church. They call them Judaizers. 
They're Jews who are very, very proud of the fact that they are Jewish. They're proud of the Mosaic uh, legal system. They believe that you need to continue to live that system in order to find salvation. And so these are Christ-following Jewish people who believe that the infiltration of the Gentiles into their faith is fine only if those Gentiles begin to live the ways of the Jews. In other words, you need to be circumcised. You need to follow uh, a lot of our regulations, our rules, our systems in order to be saved. You know, you Gentiles, you've come in to our thing. Jesus is our Messiah. And, and we, we called you dogs. You dogs have come into our religion, our church, our place of worship. And so you need to follow our rules, our traditions. But it's interesting what Paul does here. Paul calls the Judaizers dogs. That's exactly what the Gentiles were called by the Jews. And Paul says to these Gentile believers in Philippi, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. You know, one of the things that helps us to grow in our maturity, in our faith, is to actually beware of legalism. He says, evil mutilators, the circumcised, those who are calling for circumcision. He doesn't use the, the Greek word for circumcision. He calls them mutilators simply because circumcision is now a thing of the past, and they're forcing this onto people. These Judaizers, they're preaching salvation by works, by following this Jewish system, And even scarier, folks, they're preaching social legalism. Now, let me give you a good example of social legalism. There was a talk show years ago, The Ed Sullivan Show. I only watch reruns. But he would have this person, and I've used this analogy before, but most of you are new, so he would have this person on who was called the plate spinner. And what the plate spinner would do is he would take a stick and he would set that stick up upright and he would put a plate on top of it and then he would spin that plate. And the plate would begin to spin on top of the stick and then he'd put another stick up and he would spin the plate and he'd put another stick up and he would spin the plate. And this continued until he's got all kinds of plates up on a stick spinning. It was pretty phenomenal. And it's the perfect example of what social legalism actually looks like. Let me, let me uh, interpret it for you a little bit. Imagine that one of those plates is a system or a way that somebody is imposing on you that you need to go about living your faith. So let's call one plate attending ladies' Bible study, which is only for ladies. That's interesting, isn't it? Anyway... Uh, we're gender inclusive here at our church, so men can come to ladies' Bible study. I really believe that. Anyway, one plate, I digress, eh? One plate, ladies' Bible study. Another plate is like my reading plan that I'm working on this month or this year. 
And another plate is the devotions that you do out of my daily bread, fruitful things. And, and another plate is attending, like having your kids attend uh, midweek programs. And then another plate is that you've got to remember to share your faith with your neighbor. And then another plate is, oh, I've got to remember to tithe because the Bible says that I should be tithing. And then another plate, y- you get my point? It's building it with things that people tell you that are about building your faith. And then here's what happens. You're a good Christian. You're doing amazing when all your plates are spinning. But the minute plates start to fall, now you're struggling in your relationship with Jesus. Oh, I missed Bible study. I can't believe. I, like, what, what are people going to think of me? Because I missed Bible study. Because the way that we define it, even today in the Christian church, is this outward social legalism. Where if you're doing these certain things, then you must be a good Christian. But if you're not doing those things, then you're not a good Christian. Can I free you of that and say that that is a bunch of crap? It really is, folks. The things that we impose on people often are not even biblical in nature. And they have nothing to do with the transformation of our hearts. See, legalism focuses on outward appearance while neglecting the far weightier matters of the heart. Jesus spoke directly against this mindset in Matthew 23, verse 23. He says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Listen to what he says. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Cumin, 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 whatever. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You're missing the point of the law is what he's saying. And then if we jump down to verse 27, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. What a great intro, eh? You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous but in the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Spiritual maturity and discernment means that the church must become aware of legalism and the attitudes that come with it. Now, you'll see that Paul talks about circumcision, but he actually says that We are the circumcision. That serving God, that we're the ones who serve God by his spirit and that we don't trust in the flesh. What what Paul's doing here is he's flipping everything upside down of what these Judaizers believe. He's saying, we are the circumcised. We are actually uh, descendants of Abraham. You Gentiles who haven't been circumcised You are descendants of Abraham because it's not your circumcision that marks you as a believer. 
See, the Jews had this system that they would use to mark. There was like certain things, certain milestones, certain things like circumcision and, and all these systematic things that they had that they would say, that is what makes you specifically Jewish. And Paul says, none of that is now what makes you a descendant of Abraham. You see, these Judaizers, they were, they were really full of themselves and they really believed that their ethnicity is what mattered the most that that was the distinctiveness, that they were the the true people of God. And in order to be the true chosen people, you had to be in the line of Abraham. And Paul says, no, you just need to be in the line of Christ, which is open and available to all of those who place their trust in him. And then he uses this line about the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit lives in us. And that is actually what empowers us to serve King Jesus. So therefore, because we are descendants in the line of Abraham, we are his chosen people, and we live our lives by the Spirit because the Spirit lives in us, which empowers us. See, we can't do it on our own, and so the Spirit empowers us to serve King Jesus. Any efforts that we make that are fully in the flesh are useless. He says, we don't, we don't trust the flesh. Now, when we see the word flesh, we automatically think of things like sexual immorality, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He uses the language of flesh here to basically say dependence on yourself and dependence on human systems. And so we don't depend on those things. Why? Because we're descendants of Abraham, because we live life in the spirit. And the Spirit empowers us to not rely on human systems, but on Jesus. Now that rocks some of our worlds because we like our human systems. Monday to Saturday, and then for an hour and a half, we give up those systems. Do we really? Because the church runs through those systems too. And so to be truly spiritually mature, to be truly spiritually discerning, you've got to be able to knock down those systematic barriers and begin to let the Spirit guide who you are. And folks, I'm going to tell you something. Most of the time that rocks your world because it doesn't make sense. This is not a logical-based decision, so I can't do it. I don't know how many meetings I've been in that I've been explaining that, you know, God is bigger than us. You guys realize that, right? But what we tend to do is we have this tiny little God, and then we have, like, our lives. And that's how we tend to function. We have this little God that we reach out to occasionally whenever we need him, and then we've got our lives, which is what matters the most. But see, that is life in the flesh, And what God is saying is to take that big box and take his bigger box and put it inside. You get what I'm saying? The Spirit guides and and runs your life and your decision-making, and you are completely spiritually immature if the me box is bigger than the God box. And according to Dr. Baxter, that is actually based on the way that you act and the way that you think. Do 
Genuine faith, folks, is a matter of the heart. It's not circumcision that marks you or transforms you or says that you're a Christian or a Jew. It's the Spirit living in you that empowers change in the way you think and the way you act. Maturity and discernment are centered on growing deeper in Christ, not in following rules or traditions. There's nothing wrong with rules and traditions, but folks, they're not your faith. They're not the everything about who you are in Christ. Maturity and discernment are centered on growing deeper, and legalism focuses on outward reform. Biblical Christianity focuses on inward transformation. And the words that we speak, the way that we live, are an outflow of where our hearts are actually at. Now let's continue reading in verse 4. This is an interesting section. He says, Though I myself have reason for such confidence. So he's talking about living in the flesh, living uh, by our own uh, power uh, and, and living by our own ways of making decisions. He says, Though I myself have reason for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, Sounds a little haughty, doesn't it? This is what he says. Circumcised on the eighth day, Paul is giving you a picture of his resume as a Jew. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now, I don't know. Can somebody help us? I'll give it a shot. Again, this is the context of us trusting in our human abilities. These are Jews that are trying to transform the Gentiles into Jewish Christians. So what Paul is saying is, if you want to do everything by our own ability... Let me show you what I was able to pull off as a Jew. Now, normally, Paul would not boast. He would talk against boasting. We see that in Corinth when he addresses them about boasting. But in this moment, Paul is trying to make a point. So he is saying, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was the greatest pitcher of a genuine Jew. You see, the thing about the Judaizers is some of them were actually converted to Judaism. They weren't born a a, a purebred, so to speak, Jew like Paul was. And that's what he's giving us. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm from the line of Benjamin. The line of Benjamin is the first king to the Jewish nation. That's the line that he came from. I'm in the proper line. You're probably not. So if we're going to match up resumes, mine's better than yours. That's essentially what he's saying. He's not just a normal Jew. He's in the line of Benjamin, which is in the line of Jacob. 
Hebrew of Hebrews. And I love how he says, when it come, came to the law, I was faultless. And my zeal, like my passion, I was so passionate that I went out and killed people for our faith. The church. Match that, fellas. Now, let's shift, let's shift gears a little bit. I, I don't want you to see Paul as boasting in a negative way here. Like I said, he's making a point that if we're going to make it about human effort and human ability, this is everything I was able to accomplish. How are you doing? But now he begins to show us the gospel and how the gospel is what actually brings maturity and discernment in us. And so what he's going to do is say, we don't actually rely on the flesh. We don't rely on those resume things. Here's what we actually rely on, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he points us toward the gospel being the centerpiece of absolutely everything. But the Judaizers believe in a warped gospel. Now, I'm just going to address that very quickly. We have a ton of warped gospels out there today. A ton. And some of you may even feel that you're the defenders of the original true gospel. And maybe, maybe you are. But all of us in one way or another have a warpedness to our gospel. If we were truly honest, because we're in sin, we kind of begin to make the gospel about us, about our way of thinking. And we try to get the gospel to fit into our big me box instead of the Jesus box. We're all guilty of this. And so when we preach and teach to you that the gospel needs to be the centerpiece of who you are, if you have a skewed gospel, you then have a skewed viewpoint of what that centeredness is. Do you see the problem? So what Paul is doing here is he's going to teach us four key things that help us shape a healthy understanding of what the gospel message actually is. In Philippians verse three, chapter 3, verse 7 to 8, he says this. So he's just finished listing his resume. He says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. What Paul's saying here is God is not impressed with our achievements. It's not your achievements that make you gospel-centered. In Luke chapter 12, verses 15 to 19, look at, listen to how Jesus puts it. Watch out. There it is again. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he goes on to tell them this parable. He says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, Well, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. This parable literally explains 
the way that the world thinks. I always need more. I need to build more, to store more, so that I can have more security, so that I can take it easy, so that I can retire as early as possible, and I can eat, drink, and be merry. But if I have certain ethics, I'll just eat and be merry. But yet gluttony is a sin too, but let's just not worry about that. Notice God doesn't say to the man, wow, that's amazing. Good work. It's so awesome that you worked that hard, that you were that diligent of a farmer, that you were that brilliant of a businessman, that you knew how to navigate building up your crop and building buildings to store your crop. Isn't that amazing? I've never seen such amazing stuff. Good for you, my good and faithful servant. Is that what Jesus says? Well, let's look at verse 20. But God said to him, you fool. Let's let that sink in for a second. You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Are these the things that you're going to center your life on? Are these the things that are going to drive your big me box? Your achievements? Your ability to do things? It's humbling, folks, to know that God is not impressed with our achievements, nor does God need our achievements. Here's one of the things that Paul tells us about the gospel here. The gospel is about spiritual bankruptcy. I'm going to say that again. The gospel is about spiritual bankruptcy. Those who know that they need Christ know that they can't achieve anything on their own that is able to honor God. And so the beginning stages of salvation, what the gospel actually speaks to us folks, is that we need to become spiritually bankrupt in order to truly place our trust in Jesus Christ. And so the more, let me, let me just interpret that for you, the more that you hold on to your abilities, the further you draw away from Christ. The more that you give up on self, and I mean give up in a good way, under his promises and his love and his grace, but the more you let go of your control, the closer and closer you can draw to Christ. And so the longer you want a big me box, the more you hinder your spiritual maturity, the more you hinder your ability to truly discern. Because discernment comes through the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, the gospel, he says, is also about how to become right with God. So it's about being bankrupt spiritually, and then it's about how to become right with God. If we read verse 9, he says, And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Our righteousness does not come from what we do. It comes from where we place our trust. 
It's not good works that brings salvation. It's faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Remember the context here. The Judaizers are saying, this is how you need to live as a Gentile Christian. You need to become like us. And Paul is flipping that upside down and saying, no, you need to be spiritually bankrupt. And the only way to become right with God is to believe and place your trust in his son as your Lord and Savior. That's why when I use the phrase, I serve King Jesus, it's a very loaded phrase. Because if I truly serve King Jesus, it means that the king sets the stage for my life, not me. And so he says, in order to become right with God, it's not good works, it's faith. Faith equals trust, not just believing, but trusting. And trust is shown by the way we think and the way we act. Essentially, folks, without getting into the deep theological concepts of justification, because that's what he's talking about here, it's the work of the cross that makes us right with God, and it's a free gift of grace. It's not anything that you or I are able to do. And then Paul moves on, and he says this about the gospel. The gospel includes suffering. If you look at verse 10, he says, I want you to know, I want you to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I have had so many Christians come to me and say, I don't understand why I'm suffering. I'm a believer. And didn't Jesus die on the cross to take my suffering away? Folks, how many times have you said to somebody, if you accept Jesus, your life is going to be better? Yet, that's a skewed gospel, isn't it? Because the gospel actually says that we participate in his sufferings. He tells us to pick up our own cross. Suffering is a big part of serving Christ. And it's part of the reality of the gospel. And so if it is omitted from your gospel, you have a skewed gospel. Going against the ways of the flesh, the ways of the world, is challenging. So Paul links his own suffering with Christ's power in him. You got to read it that way. His power, Christ's power in him is what enables him to walk through suffering. And then he says in verse 11, which is, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I, I love this verse because here is the Apostle Paul, a Jewish scholar, somebody who wrote a large chunk of our Bible, and he's like, well, I'm not sure how this is going to all work out, but I'm just trusting it will in the end. Isn't that awesome? What he's talking about here, though, folks, is that the, the gospel, a fourth component of the gospel that your gospel must include, is about spiritual transformation. Now, by resurrection from the dead, Paul's referring to the eternal state, the state that Jesus' second coming will bring into reality, the finishing piece of God's redemptive work. 
What I want you to see here is earlier on in this series, I taught you about justification, sanctification, and glorification. Paul has just walked us through a practical view of what that, those three things look like. It's only Jesus and through Jesus alone. We're becoming more and more like Jesus each and every day through our sufferings. And then one day our bodies will be given a perfect body. This is, I'm excited about this day. And that perfect body will be in order to live with King Jesus in person and sin will be no more. And Paul says, I don't know how all that's going to work. Some people do, apparently. They wrote books on it. It's awesome. But the Apostle Paul, he doesn't know. I don't know how all that's going to get figured out, but I believe somehow he will be resurrected one day. That one day we'll receive our perfect bodies. Now, as we journey through our life in faith, God helps us to grow each day. This is not something that is only for some of us. This is something that's being offered to all of us. But often it's through suffering and challenges and how we go about navigating the suffering and the challenges. Where do we place our trust? Where are we going to find our decisions? Google is a wonderful place, but it's not the place to find good discernment. I I feel bad for our our doctor friends who attend the church because they must hate Google. Where people come in and they're like, I think this is what's wrong with me. And then you diagnose and they're like, I don't know about that. That's not what Google said. (laughs) It must drive them insane. Folks, we do the same thing with scripture. The scriptures say something, but we Google it or we believe some crap somebody tells us. And we just take it as gospel truth. And we develop this perverted gospel that sends us down a misdiagnosis, so to speak, when the doctor actually told us what was wrong and said, here, take this. No, I, I, I need another opinion. Ladies' Bible study said. They're all laughing. My wife says, watch it. <laughs> Jesus wants us to place our faith and our trust alone in him. Which means that as we mature in Christ and we learn to be more discerning, it means that we're opening our life up to the workings of the Spirit each and every day. One must, our trust must lie in the person of Jesus and the promises he brings of salvation. We live our life in Christ and for Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whether you eat, you drink, whatever you do, 
Do it all for the glory of God. Scripture is very clear, folks, that we do all things for the glory of God. If we are ever doing things not for the glory of God, we got a problem. So in order to navigate challenges amongst one another, Scripture calls us to grow and mature in Christ so that we can then be spiritually discerning. The good news of Jesus is what drives us to live. To be transformed and to live like Jesus. We do all things for the glory of Jesus. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by the good things we do. We're saved by grace, the grace that only the cross can bring. The big idea is this, and then we're going to transition to communion. As we live our lives in a broken world, we must do everything with the gospel at the center. Our trust is in Jesus, not in our own abilities or religious structures. It's the cross of Christ that brings true freedom, not a works-based faith that relies on human abilities. As we transition into communion, whoever's playing, or if the band's playing, I don't know, if whoever's coming, come on up. As we transition into communion, this is, this is my challenge to you. This is what I want you to ponder, because that's what we do in communion. As we allow the Spirit to speak to us and to transform us. We've talked about a lot of challenging things throughout this series. For instance, are you a grumbler? Right? That was a challenging piece of scripture that we had to navigate because, to be bluntly honest, we all get caught in grumbling. Are you somebody who places your trust in yourself and then you wonder why you feel like Jesus has abandoned you? Or are you someone who's been very successful in a worldly sense and that is been part of why you've built that trust in self. But when life does get difficult, because it will, all of that stuff begins to feel hollow. You see, we have to focus our whole life on the gospel message that we have been given. The good news that Jesus Christ has freed us, not just from uh, his wrath. Don't let me, I'm not going to get into that. You get me all riled up. <clears throat> like what a lousy, simple thing. Like, oh, I'm saved from the wrath of God someday. Really? I'm saved from sin today. That's the gospel. I even got a southern gospel in there. As we move to, to communion, I challenge you to soften your heart to begin to question yourself around the gospel that you've ran your life with. Is it perverted? Simple way to know. It needs those four things in it. Any other questions you have, just go to Jesus. Anything that is outside of who he was is probably not in the gospel. 
That means that the way he acted, that means that the conversations he had, that not just his death and his resurrection on the cross, that is just this much of the gospel. The whole person of Jesus is the gospel. The gospel actually started in Genesis, by the way. We'll get into that another day. So soften your hearts and open your minds to hearing what the Spirit is trying to teach you today so that you can mature in Christ.